Welcome and thanks for listening to another episode of Zero Cafe. In this episode, I talk to designer, developer, and optimizer Matt Bashel. He runs his own agency, Corvus Zero, and we discuss automating parts of your Zero workflow so you can keep focusing on the fun parts of the job. My name is Guido Janssen and welcome to Zero Cafe, the podcast where I show you the behind the scenes of optimization teams and talk with their specialists about data and human-driven optimization and implementing a culture of experimentation and validation. In case you missed it, in the previous episode, I spoke to Sean Shepard from GrowthX about why Zero specialists like you and me should actually be thinking like venture capitalists. You can find that episode on zero.cafe slash episodes or in the podcast app you're listening with right now. This episode of Zero Cafe is made possible by our partners Content Square, Convert.com, Online Dialogue, and Sidespect. So, Matt, welcome to the show. And uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about your background and how you are working with Zero. Yeah, so I have a fine arts background. I got into like doing print design in high school through working on a yearbook and taking art classes and, and stuff like that. So that really got me interested in the field of design. And from there in college did majored in actually 3d animation. Cause I wanted to be like a animator and maybe get into yeah. video games and stuff, but discovered like, that was, I wasn't really passionate about it. Like you're working on something for a super, super long time and you get maybe like a minute's worth of work. <laughs> yeah. And so I stayed still like taking design classes and things on the side and web design was like a really new space then. And that really interested, interested me. So after leaving college, I got, I got work in print and worked in direct mail and catalog production for a couple years and then transitioned into web design and then web development landed at an e-commerce company where I was really able to use all those design and dev skills to work on e-commerce sites. But as just a developer, I was always asking these questions were like, okay, we're working on our client sites and, and making changes and updates and, you know, redesigning pages and altering UIs and, and all those different things. How do we know that they're paying us to do all this work? How do we know that it's actually like beneficial? And so that's how I got into yeah. doing conversion optimization. Uh, it was right around, I want to say, like 2013, 2014-ish. And yeah. we, we somehow ended up discovering Optimizely and started using that as a layer on top of, okay, we're delivering changes, but let's test out the changes first and so i instituted uh the testing programs for for clients that were were interested in it and just have been doing it from do, there. do you still remember the do you still remember the first test that you uh, ran no out? no first no ish? not at all <laughs> so were they like were they like big redesigns or like a, a big version a versus a really big change or was it just small elements that you started out with nothing wasn't gigantically transformative like we weren't doing like an entire site redesign or anything like that a lot of it was yeah. um, because i have that background in design and ui that's what i was more focusing on so doing things like making adjustments to say the cart page or adding a, an interface feature to the product page or you know making navigational adjustments and, and things like that rather than like 
promotions or aesthetic based changes, you know, like the, the classic, you know, change the button color kind of thing, which is, you know, bull, bullshit test <laughs> that, you know, anyway. But yeah, so a lot of it was, I think, in the early stages, optimizing uh, checkout form process, you know, elimination of unnecessary fields, lining up input inputs so that it would be easier to parse out the form and, and different things like that. So how, how did this, uh, did this make you a better designer, uh, doing all these experiments? Did it change uh, how you work or how yes, you look at things? Because I had always not necessarily been distrustful of my, myself, but more questioning, like, it looks nice, but I, well, not, not just looks nice, but you always like, like how, how do you, how do you, I always struggled to find a way to like quantify or prove out the value of the work. Like, how yeah. do I know that this change actually is more beneficial? Sure. I have, you know, education and training and experience and stuff, but there's always this little bit of doubt in the, in the back of your head. Like, is this the right thing for this client or this website or whatever? And so when I sort of discovered split testing, it was like, oh, this is how I answer that question. And yeah. I can like prove out like the hypothesis of, like, okay, I think this may be better. Let's try it out and see if it works. So absolutely it did make me a better designer because I can make more informed decisions, but also like that openness to essentially be wrong in like, I don't have a vested stake in the success of this in terms of this change. I know this change is better. I want to discover what's the best path to go down. And if it's not this design, do we need to make, like, do we stick with what is current or do we, do we iterate? What kind you know, how can we change or mutate or evolve what we're working on to, yeah. to be performant? How big is designing still part of your, um, your daily job? It's pretty big. So the way that I work with clients, I'm basically uh, just an independent single-person consultancy. And I do end-to-end. -end. So I, I bring on the client, I go through the and I go through the entire process. I'll do all, uh, usually work in collaboration with them on test ideation. So coming up with all the ideas and hypotheses and stuff. But then I have a, a prioritization framework so we'll run all the experiment ideas through prioritization and then i'll design out the changes and build the tests you know write the code in the in the whatever testing platform and then you know execute it do quality control proof it out make sure the test is set up correctly and everything and then review results analysis with the client so basically it's like end-to-end -end service all the way through i do as much or as little as the client requires and uh, yeah, we wanted to talk about uh, uh, automation today. Uh, you have some some thoughts and some some ideas on how to do that, right? So, uh, first off, uh, what are the things that you are automating? The, the things that that are tedious to you or annoying? Yeah, yeah. So, a lot a lot of my work is focused on, like you said, mm -hmm. elimination of of tedium. Like, yeah, I hate being bored with work, in the sense of like. Sure, you. Everybody's work is going to be boring in in some way, but that that doesn't mean your job as a whole has to be boring. And like as an example, 
Um, I mean, so, some people you know, like data entry. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So, some people know. find joy in repetitive tasks. Uh, I can totally understand that, but for me <laughs> personally, it may be a, it may be like a Zen. Exactly, it can be, but for, them, right? um, uh, for me also, uh, if if it's really repetitive, I need to do it all uh, all over again uh, the next time. Uh, are really going to try to find a way to automate it. Yeah, like I, be, I, I enjoy being engaged and thoughtful about my work. Like I don't enjoy data entry no. and, 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 and things like that. As a, right, as a designer, like I'm always like thinking creative, mm -hmm. like, prob like problem solving, not, not process execution yeah. so much. Um, and so I look at like any process that I create and it's like, how can I standardize this to make it, repeatable both in the aspects of the repeatability lends itself towards trainability so that it can scale so it's like okay if this is a, if this is you do this thing the same way every time you can train other people to do it but then also you can either create tools or leverage something already existing to automate that process so as as an example you know like when i have a completed uh, split test and I want to record all of the results because I collate them all to, you know, evaluate program health. Like, okay, if we, we've run 20 experiments so far this year or whatever, you know, how many of them were revenue generators yeah. and, and this and that. So, you, you know, you want to store off all your stats and some, some of the split testing tools don't really, you know, have like a program management yeah. to allow you to collate all that data easily. So you have to do it in some sort of outside fashion, which means you have to transpose your split test result data from the testing tool into your outside source or using a spreadsheet or, or something like that, right? So I found it like it would take me 30 to 45 minutes just to record off result data for an experiment. And it's like, you know, I have to do this thing the same way every time. And I'm literally just copy pasting yeah. from the web browser into a spreadsheet. And that's like so, <laughs> it's like so boring and so an unnecessary thing. Online Dialogue is al tien jaar een toonaangevend CRO-bureau waar mensen, kwaliteit en kennisoverdracht centraal staan. Ze zijn een specialist omdat ze zich alleen richten op optimalisatie en klantgedrag. Het team zorgt voor online groei en waardevolle inzichten in je bezoekers en optimaliseren samen met jou de verschillende onderdelen van je CRO-programma, zoals websites, sales funnels en customer journeys. Voor meer info ga je naar onlinedialog.nl. Yeah, you're not you're not learning anything from that itself. Right. It's it's just tedious, busy work that has to be done as part of the process. But it's like as a person, I shouldn't have to be doing this, right? Like copying data from one source to another. So I wrote a little JavaScript snippet to where like it, I have it set as a bookmarklet. I can just hit the button. It'll open like a little overlay on the results page. I can say, you know, this variation was the one that I say is the winner and this and that and pick a couple other inputs and then hit submit and it, and it just pushes off all, all of the scraped data into my test repository. So something that took me like, you know, 30, 45 minutes now takes me 10 seconds yeah. to do. And for how often I have to do that, it's like in aggregate, how much time am I saving and how much tedium am I eliminating? Yeah. So doing all, like, you know, automating all of those little processes 
away, like repeatable tasks. Why did you pick a JavaScript? Why didn't you just use the API of the of the tool and to push it to a spreadsheet? Or doesn't that work for the tool? Not not all tools have a full API available, I guess. Sure, there's there's probably some way to to do it that way, but that's like the way that I figured yeah. it out. Now, to to be fair, like I uh, I use uh, I use a tool called Airtable. Yeah to collate all of my test results. You know, it's like an online spreadsheet type of type yep. of tool. And I'm using their API to push the data in, and it's a JavaScript API. Oh, okay, yeah. So it's basically like, yeah, so I just write JavaScript to scrape the result data because I'm on the yeah. page. And there's a, the, it, it can't be completely automated because there's still a little, a couple touch points of yeah. human input that are necessary. So I can't like just write like an automated script, like, hey, go grab this data. Like there's still like, a little human factor involved so that that allows me to like okay pick the points that are necessary like for a human decision and then submit the data exactly yeah any any other uh time savers that you built i'm also using zapier ah yeah, yeah. which is a great aut automation yeah. tool like um, a, if this then that's uh for pros <laughs> for pro tools yes uh, business tools yes, yeah exactly yeah um so in in that same vein, like um, which which also works with Airtable. I, I would, yes, no. exactly. So I have a I have a an automation set up for when I push new split test result data in. It also runs a Google Analytics report to grab some data from GA for cross referencing against the split and against the result data as well. So that was that was also part of the time saver you know another thing like like with zapier how would you make sure that the data matches so the data from the from the uh, experiments or the, the the segment that you use in the experiment with google analytics so i'm not um the, the 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 type of data that i'm using in ga it's really for um estimation purposes rather than like like, ah, okay, like yeah. rather than result analysis so i'm really only using it like Say okay, what was what was this data captured in GA for the equivalent time frame of the experiment, and then what was yeah. that data set going back a year so that I can evaluate like a percentage of say like traffic or revenue to help determine like seasonality time frame for the experiment, mm -hmm. for example. You know, to say like okay, if this if this experiment generated an additional fifty thousand dollars or something. Yeah. in in january well how heavy is the site traffic load in in january so we can sort of get a better estimation of like is that fifty thousand dollars sustainable throughout the year yeah. or is it like oh hey that was peak season so like it's really not going to generate <laughs> yeah. that that much you know monthly exactly you know, or something like that yeah. so you use the ga data to be, to be able to extrapolate the the results yeah to sort of help evaluate seasonality and stuff nice. yeah yeah it's not like exactly. a, it's not like a hard comparison though though to your point no. like i've had thoughts around trying to wrap a process around doing segmentation and stuff with it as yeah, well i can imagine that's really hard to to automate because there i mean you can have infinite kinds of segments <laughs> in all kinds of ways right and but there could also be like some like common use case ones like okay what was the mm -hmm. you know the the segmentation across different breakpoints or new versus returning track you know yeah. there's some some common 
recurrent ones that you could easily automate now. You know, like like yeah, personal you can automate the ones. the default ones. Yeah, uh, yeah. automate the the common yeah. ones, and then uh, or even like you know earlier in the testing process, define what your segments are. Which uh, in my like. Um, ideation process i use i use a hypothesis builder that i that mm -hmm. i constructed okay, and it yeah. takes it's it's basically you know like like hypothesis mad libs it has like you know all the different data points <laughs> you know, like we think this that yeah. and who's who's the target audience what pages mm -hmm. are going to be and it's basically like a way to yeah. source all of like the experiments framework information yeah and so if you could set that up in a way to say like these are the you know these are the appropriate segments that we're targeting for the experiment. Yeah. You could carry that data through and then pull the the GA segments that way as well. So it's it's all a matter of like capturing the data when you need it and then using it at a at a later time and just turning it into yeah. some kind of system or process. So the form is something you use for the clients to to enter the data in or something just for yourself or yes i i built it with the intent of uh getting clients to submit more hypotheses yeah and also to train them up on that process as well because like i'll uh, i meet with my clients every week mm -hmm. to to you know uh, just transparency is very big for me so i keep them like informed and engaged in the process yeah and so for long, you know, they'll always come with like new experiment ideas or some level of curiosity, you know, like, or in some perspective that's different for me, like a really good example, one of my clients, they have their head of customer support on their, on the call every week. Mm -hmm. And he's bringing in really useful information and feedback that their phone service representatives get all the time from customers, like a customer will call and be like, Hey, I was trying to order this, that, or another product and was yeah. having trouble this way or that way, you know? And so there's, he's, a, it's a really good source of customer feedback. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, we'll, we'll be talking about things on the, on our phone call or meeting and things get lost because, you know, you're trying to, you're taking meeting notes and stuff, but you're discussing a bunch of things. So I was kind of like, how can I capture all of these ideas or also help expand the experiment maturity yeah. in the, in the organization by like, here, here's this like easily shareable, like hypothesis input tool. Think of it like a virtual suggestion box almost like that was yeah. sort of the intent behind it. And I've had difficulty getting traction with the clients, like sharing it out. So my so my struggle now is like okay how do I do a better job of like socializing it within the clients yeah. organization to start sourcing and really like sort of that's definitely something I recognize that that's a lot of uh, even if you make it just a simple form it's, it's apparently really hard for people to use it it's, it's way easier for them just to send you an email <laughs> because that that's yes. in their system yes. sending emails that's yeah. fine everyone can send emails uh, but filling out the structured form. Uh, I mean, you're basically asking them to already think about uh, the whole uh, all the hypothesis building. Okay, where did the ID came from? What do you expect to happen? Uh, for who do you expect it to happen? Those are difficult questions, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's hard, uh, right? It's probably tricky for it to be like an organization-wide yeah. thing. But 
it's still probably useful for the stakeholders and it's also like an educational component like for the for the people that i'm directly interacting with it's like here's how you should be thinking of an experiment like it starts with the hypothesis and this is these are all the necessary data points to execute and construct a good experiment you know so it's it's also sort of a little training yeah. tool as well to scale up the customer's knowledge yeah in, in my experience what, what might help there depends a bit on the on the on the company i guess um, but if afterwards you can you can share with the results and then say hey but that came from uh, this and this guy or girl from customer service because they filled in this form <laughs> so we know it came from yeah. them and yeah. that's that's an incentive for people oh maybe i should use a form <laughs> So, yeah. so he remembers it's my ID. Yeah, and I've had <laughs> thoughts of like, since it's since it's an input form, I mean, you can place it anywhere, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, you, well, you couldn't place a form in an email, but you know, doing something like on on my little like bookmarklet overlay tool, you know, uh, uh, client yeah. already uses that for doing test proofing. Like, I could just add that as a feature. Yeah as well so it's like oh they're looking at the website they have an idea they just hit that and then the form comes right up and they can fill it out and put it in yeah i think i uh, i added it to to intranets and i also created just just like the, the client url slash ab test id or t just test id and then uh, only make it uh, available uh, with internal ips <laughs> yeah yeah like i have a, a password protected yeah. client portal where it where it sits now where they can come and and submit stuff but it It hasn't sufficiently gained enough traction. Sidespec biedt wereldwijd een unieke AB-testing personalisatie en product recommendation oplossing. Sidespec werkt server-side, dus zonder tags of scripts, waardoor een optimale performance gegarandeerd is. De Sidespec-oplossing elimineert vertragingen en kans op flikkereffecten. Tevens zorgt deze aanpak ervoor dat de huidige en toekomstige browser security regels zoals ITP en ETP geen impact hebben op het AB-testen en personaliseren met Sidespect. Voor meer informatie hierover ga je naar sidespect.com. So what's, what's, what's the next project that you're going to be automating? What's the next thing that you're <laughs> annoyed about? <laughs> yeah. Um, Or maybe an expansion of, uh, of the things you already have? Yeah, so lately I've been doing a lot of work around just more broad project management. So doing things like essentially cutting down on the, on the repeatable tasks that a project manager would traditionally do. You know? So you have sort of some sort of like project management software that you're already using, like you know, Basecamp or Trello or Asana or, or whatever, right? And someone has to, that tool is only as good as the person managing it. So making making it easy to manage and wrangle. Like I already have a process in place for like, I have experiments essentially broken down into six stages of progress. And yep. so when an experiment moves between each stage, that's a trigger for actions to happen, right? So as an example, like if an experiment moves into the proofing or quality control stage use i use like like zapier to automatically post into the project management platform like it, it creates like the the client sign off task and says hey this is ready for preview and then it and it automatically assembles like the preview link that the client can click on to 
go directly to their site and it triggers like the you know the variations and the like a little variation switcher tool that I that I've built yeah and stuff so that they can actually test and proof out the the experiment live on their site rather than trying to get them to like log into the split testing tool and try and QC it that way and stuff so it's like removing all this these friction points but then also like taking tedious workload off of my back of like having to create that task and post it and and things like that and stuff yeah yeah and the great thing about zapier if, if you do it that way is that you can uh use well almost whatever tool the client is using as a as a project management mm -hmm. tool whether it's asana or jira or uh, trello or whatever you can probably use that to to post a task there so whatever they're using yeah yeah and like my solution currently is cobbled together from Airtable, Zapier, and project management tool. Yeah. <laughs> I, ideally, I would like to have like my own internal yeah. tool that's like actually custom and purpose built. That have you ever tried? So I, I worked before with uh, Effective Experiments. I want to know if you. I'm, uh, I'm familiar, <laughs> but I have before. not. I'm familiar, but I have not tried the tool. But I yeah. once I dis yep. once I discovered it, I was like in my head, I was like, this is probably the thing that I'm that I'm envisioning. Yeah. So. Yeah, the great thing is, uh, so it's it's a separate tool, of course. So it mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily tie into whatever the client is uh, is using. Uh, but one of the definitely the greatest. One of the greatest things in my experience with with the, uh, tools like this is that indeed what you said, when something moves from a different stage to another stage, that, that usually triggers something. So I had a development stage and a design stage, which automatically would email the person responsible for designing uh, experiments or developing experiments. And, and in the case of developing experiments, it would also automatically create uh, a JIRA ticket for the for the dev team. So yes. they can assign yeah. it to whoever they want. Um and that's that's that takes. I mean, if you just run one experiment at a time, it's fine to to all coordinate that. But if you go up to I don't know a ten over ten experiments, uh, you don't want to message everyone personally right. <laughs> whenever a, a a status of an experiment changes. And then when a tool or workflow like yours can handle that, that that saves so much time. Right, and there's also you have to appropriately balance like timing and clutter as well like um somewhere yeah, I used you, to you work. can you can overwhelm people with it of course exactly. if you run a lot of experiments so that's that's definitely a trade or even just just with like project management notifications and task assignments and things yep. like if you're not you have to find the right balance like if you're notifying people too frequently it just becomes clutter and they tune out and ignore it and then when something important actually comes in well it's just noise so it ends up getting yep. deleted like I remember somewhere I used to work, they had, uh, they were using Jira and they had it set up so that like when you created a new project, it had maybe a task list of like 40 different assignments and everything would get assigned on project creation. So if you had like six things assigned to you, you didn't, you would get assigned them as soon as they were all created. Yeah. And you, but you didn't know when you were at, able to work on them like you didn't know what your blockers were like what the previous tasks were you know so someone had to like actually manage all that stuff or you had to go in and like monitor it on your own and that was like you know it, it's just creating too much noise and it's making it more difficult for the people for the for the worker to actually find their work and accomplish it so yeah 
So what are your other experience with working with clients? I'm, I'm, I'm curious. So you do, how, how does the workflow usually look like? So you say you have at least one uh, face-to-face or, well, <laughs> remote <laughs> face-to-face uh, meeting with them each week? Yeah, yes. I'm, uh, I'm of the opinion of like being very, very transparent and collaborative with the client, like building that relationship and getting them involved in the process because, because it helps them Mm -hmm. become more invested and more of a stakeholder in the process rather than like, here, I'll run a bunch of tests and you get a report every month or, or something like that. Like that in-person communication allows you to stay involved also successfully execute on relationship building, which as a consultant, that's how you Mm -hmm. keep and maintain clients is if you, you have that personal relationship as well. And then also it helps socialize and demonstrate the success of the program too. Like the client more easily shares and like the wins and the feedback. And it also sort of trains them up to expect like individual tests are for information gathering. Like it, it, it eliminates that notion of like, Oh, well, I'm only going to test things that I think are going to be successful. Like you're testing to answer questions, mm-hmm. right? The, the, the ROI isn't not, not that the, the value is incidental, but you know, it, it helps disprove that notion of like, Oh, I only want to test things that I think are going to be successful. Like I'm like, yeah. I have a question about something. Let's, let's find the answer. And then yeah. that will that will eventually lead to a lift in revenue. Yeah, I usually tell them if if you have a success rate of over I don't know forty fifty percent with your experiments, you're not experimenting enough. Yeah, you, you might not even be experimenting. Yeah. You're just testing things you already know for sure for whatever reason uh, might work. Well, uh, you're very conservative with uh, what you're testing. There's also an, another aspect to it, like you quote, like success rate. Uh, I break it down in like um, experiments. I'm I'm sure other people do this too, but I like to reiterate it is like you have, you don't have winners and losers. Mm -hmm. You have, you have winners, which are, you know, experiments that demonstratively caused a lift on whatever metric you're tracking. And you have a neutral, which is inconclusive, but then you also have a save, like no experiment is a loser. Like you're not, you're not losing revenue or, losing KPI or whatever, I say you're, you're saving yourself from doing damage yeah. instead. So it's more of like, or, or, or uh, wasting a lot of development resources. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You're <laughs> like, you're, you're saving yourself from wasting resources yeah. stuff, right? You're, you're, you're optimizing spend. Yeah. And so I, instead of like saying like a 30% success rate, I actually break it down into three ways. Like, okay, I, I, I find like 25% of the experience that I won are, are winners and then, you know, 10 or 15% or whatever are, are saves. So it's like you have a greater cumulative range of, of success. Now, it, it, it's a little harder to quantify like, oh, yeah. you're not, you know, you're <laughs> We're not implementing you're this. Not losing, you're, <laughs> you're not losing money. Like, like yeah, but, but there's still like value in saying, oh, we made sure we didn't implement something that actually would have caused yeah, damage. Yeah, yeah, and also with with um, uh, looking at things like wins, and if if you only look at uplift, 
uh, especially um, uh, this month will be a really hard one <laughs> uh, for a lot yeah. of companies. That yeah. uh, I mean, either you see uh, you, you go up two three times, or you go go down like ninety percent. And that's not necessarily because you did a bad job or because you did a really good job. And al already this is proving that maybe co just conversion rate or just revenue might not be the best metric for what we do. Yeah. And with every experiment, I sort of look at uh, a, I don't want to quite, I don't want to quite say top of funnel metric, but like point, mm -hmm. point of change metric. And then end business result metric and because they're not yep. necessarily the same you know like point point of change is like what's the action that's taken directly after yeah. adding something to the basket yeah right like if you're making a change yeah. on the product page right is it is, is it increasing add to cart rate but then you're still also tracking order conversion and revenue to see okay what's what's the endpoint business lift of the metric as well you know like a, a really good example I had of that I was testing a feature with a client about um, they had the ability to filter their reviews based on different criteria. And mm -hmm. they had done usability testing prior to this. Uh, and this was before before I engaged with them and was instituted the, the testing program. Um, but they had still done usability testing on the feature and gotten some you know, customer feedback and stuff. And it's like, oh yeah, this is a great feature. Like, we'll love this. This will be super useful, you know, and it, it users in, you know, qualitative feedback responded very well to the feature. But then when we're doing some testing on an unrelated thing on the product page in some of the session replays and heat maps, I was noticing that like after users engage with the filtering feature, they were abandoning a lot of times. And so I was curious. Yeah. It's like engagement with this feature seems to increase abandonment. So the mm -hmm. you it, it was a benefit like users were saying that was a beneficial feature, but it was detrimental to the business Werken aan een front-end AB-test en heb je ook last van de bekende flikkeringen in je variaties? Dit kan natuurlijk je testresultaten beïnvloeden en een positief testresultaat neutraliseren. Probeer Convert.com's AB-testing software die Smart Insert technologie gebruikt en die flikkeringen voorkomt. Vijf keer snellere support via 24-7 chat, de helft goedkoper en het bedrijf is daarnaast maar liefst 15 keer carbon positive. Je doet dus jezelf, je bedrijf en de volgende generatie een plezier door hun website convert.com slash sneller eens te bezoeken. Ik kan me voorstellen, als het filters op dingen die mensen willen, maar je hebt niet de producten om te matchen, dan zullen ze right? Dus ze willen gebruiken de filter? Well, it's not it's not filtering products. It's filtering review information. Ah, okay. Ah, okay. Yeah. So, so the 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 yeah. So, but you're what you're saying is is correct. And like we were noticing, like the users were engaging with those filters, but they were filtering on so many criteria that they were filtering away all the reviews entirely. <laughs> Too many filters and being left with nothing. Yeah. <laughs> and so it was. So it was. It was. It was an unintentionally negative experience yeah. of like. Oh well, there's no useful information for me here, so I 
you know, I can't, I can't make a decision, so I'm going to leave. I once had a great, uh, uh, small anecdote, <laughs> uh, a site that uh, that offered filtering, um, but whatever the filters uh, were on on top of that page, for so, for some reason, no, so if if you di didn't have any results, uh, so if you filtered too far down, if you didn't have any results, it didn't necessarily they didn't have uh, numbers uh, besides the filters indicating how many results you would get. So it, it was it was a bit of a surprise they didn't have that feature uh, yet. So people filtered too far down, and then what happened uh, when you don't you didn't get any results? You did get uh, some suggestions of other products uh, that that might be interesting in the same category or whatever. Um, but they didn't say they didn't have any results. So what happened? Uh, you, you filtered too far down. There were no results, but you did see products <laughs> that were not matching your results. There were other suggestions uh, because they didn't want to show an empty page uh, to prevent that from happening, which is in itself might be a good idea. <laughs> uh, but because they didn't communicate, hey, there is no results, uh, people were very confused. Like I'm, I'm filtering down on, on Samsung TVs and I still see Philips or Sony TVs in my results or what they think uh, or thought they, uh, they had as results. So yeah, uh, filtering can be tricky. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you. So when we um, were talking before this, uh, I'm talking about uh, uh, client projects. You also mentioned client onboarding. So basically, a step back from the uh, client communication. Um, so what do, what do you do with with client onboarding? How do you set uh, the right uh, expectations from clients on what's going to happen, how fast results will be um, coming in, and that kind of stuff? How do you approach that? Mm, that's a, that's an interesting question. So, my onboarding process typically takes about a month, and that's okay. mostly from like I have you know I have pre-prepared onboarding documentation mm -hmm. that outlines like here's here's program requirements like expectations etc. But and then also like yep. like technical guides like here's how you should install the split testing tool and the heat mapping tool and you know, get, get logins and reconcile with all the accounts and, yeah. and all that stuff. And then, um, we'll set up like the weekly, we'll set up like the weekly meeting cycle. And then really the first month is just a lot of like qualitative and quantitative data collection. And, uh, in the meetings, it's like a lot of just experiment ideation. So, training the client up on like the hypothesis generation process. Like, Hey, here's the, here's the hypothesis builder. Let's walk through it. You know, you have a couple questions, ideas. So here's, you know, you give them to me and I'll show you like, okay, here's how I would take that and formulate it into a hypothesis yeah. or, or some such. And then, um, so you, you wouldn't be running any experiments in the first month, right? No, no, or or just just like an AA experiments, maybe. <laughs> um. Well, yeah. I mean, I'll do a couple like validation experiments to make sure the the testing yeah. tool is set up correctly and everything. Yes, of course. But mm -hmm. other than that, like, no, not really any kind of like hard hard testing. I mean, it 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 also depends a little bit on how fast the client gets up to speed. As as well, yeah. like if they have a couple ideas that they're really really ready to go with, and we can, and they have a good development process in place and they can get everything installed and working 
correctly quickly, then you know it it yeah. it's a lot. A lot of it is dependent on the client, and so some of it is just wrangling of like, hey, to to get that script installed yet, or <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. And so, and where do you usually the where do you are these coming from? Is it uh, you also already mentioned uh, customer service? As uh, input for those uh, hypotheses, so I'll I'll source test ideas from anywhere. Um, client client can submit them, or a, a lot of the early stage of me, it will just be me auditing yeah. the site to come up with ideas. You know, like look look at it, do some sort of UI UX audit, look through Google Analytics. Or or whatever analytics tool they're they're using to identify you know where where are some particular drop off points, um, evaluate like traffic areas, you know segments, yeah, exactly, etc. And uh, earlier you also mentioned um, um, uh, why sticking to planned test runtime parameters is important. <laughs> I think this is a, a hot topic for many. Oh yeah, <laughs> many people working with directly with clients. We're actually discussing that a little bit uh, at the uh, at the weekly stand up today. Someone was, was asking a question about that. Yeah, and my my starting point is really like is looking at the marketing or the purchase cycle of this of the segment that you're testing and seeing like, okay, if it you know if we're testing primarily on first-time visitors. And we can determine historically, it takes them about 30 days from first site visit to make that first purchase. Then the experiment needs to run at least that long to capture first first transaction of first yeah. user that came into the, into the experiment. Um, you know, so starting with just a, t just, your your expected purchase or or behavioral change time frame and then using that to estimate out a sample size feeding that into a calculator to determine your minimum detectable effect and then evaluating uh, and then doing some kind of sanity check on the the numbers that you come up with there yeah. you know so if you if you get a sample size of like 3000 and and an mde of like 80%. Well, that's completely, un, you know, that's completely unreasonable. So it's like, okay, what we have to reevaluate and change yeah. some of these numbers around to, to get some sort of sane time frame exactly. and sane detectable effect. Yeah. I was talking to um, a web shop uh, owner, I think six months ago and they, they sold kitchens online, but the average, time there to go from um, uh, browsing for a new kitchen to actually buying a kitchen is like multiple months yeah that's like a <laughs> so yeah if, if you, you you cannot run an experiment on on from first time visitor to actually uh, uh, purchasing uh, a, right. a kitchen uh, if the, if the lead time is, is way over whatever your uh, your uh, cookie settings <laughs> can handle <laughs> yeah for, and for something like that it'd almost be more like looking at like lead capture or higher what's a higher touch point exactly so you need to go from uh, for things like that people uh going from uh, for a brochure or whatever or just not not focus on first-time visitors but the repeat visitors if someone uh, visited your site mm -hmm. five times then it might be a different story right 
Yeah. 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 So, what what came out of the discussion uh, this afternoon uh, with the roundtable? Yeah, that was that was that was kind of the focus. It was like someone is having a question around, you know, how do you how do you evaluate that from a from project management standpoint? So I just sort of it, sort of, it just exposed my process. Like, okay, first I think about it from yeah. from this standpoint, and then and then work forward from there, yeah. and then do some sanity checks on the information that pops out and it's like is this is this workable is this reasonable yes we can proceed forward or do we need to need to make adjustments like for example i have one yeah. client their their purchase time is usually around 60 days so we're not always testing on on transaction because that's a pretty long purchase window exactly yeah overall that could be one of the questions in your uh, in your workflow uh, maybe even uh, just after the hypothesis uh, building, asking those kinds of questions like, "What's the business cycle for this?" Uh, just just to remind yourself. Yes, and it is. Yeah, it is. Okay, yeah, mm -hmm. that makes sense, right? Uh, just just to remind yourself. Okay, yeah, yeah that definitely that's something <laughs> I should be checking first before we build the uh, whole experiment. Yeah, so I ha well I have that broken down. So idea stage. So the first stage is the idea stage, and that's really just coming up with an idea. You know. Yeah. There's no, uh, not not quantifying it or assigning numbers to it at all yet. It's just sourcing ideas because I don't want to like mm -hmm. I want to disabuse the client of the notion of like oh that's a dumb idea or whatever. Like no you know like no idea is a bad idea. Just source everything first. Just like yeah. cultivate a healthy sense of sort of curiosity about the website. Like questioning questioning things. So coming up, just coming up with ideas is just pure, pure text, pure information. Like we think, you know, we think this, so we want to make this change for this reason, right? So just come up with an idea and then we'll move it into the planning stage. And that's where we start to quantify stuff. So that's, that's the stage where we'll say, okay, what's the, right? What's the, what's the transaction time frame for this? What's the what's an estimated sample size, what's an estimated technical effect, and then using those quantified values as a prioritization method. Yeah, and uh, you need to check those practical things, right? Can I, like you said, with uh, sample size, can I run this experiment? Does it make sense? Right, so we'll, right, taking those numbers and then feeding it into like a sample size and a duration calculator. And it's like, does the, does the duration, does the calculated duration reconcile with our 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 purchase window and also is it a reasonable time frame to run an experiment like I, I remember one time i i think it was because i made a calculation error actually but like we ended up running like the sample size calculator and comparing that against like the average daily traffic of the page and it was like this experiment's going to take 170 days to run and i was like <laughs> okay th that's you know there's no way yeah, what I also like to uh, add is uh, usually with well, we already spoke about you have the different outcomes uh, of an experiment, and, and I like to f force teams uh, up front to think about okay, if if we have these outcomes, what will happen? Um, what what would it mean for us? What what would change, or what would uh, would we implement something? Uh, wouldn't we do anything, or um, would we run a follow up experiment? Because if 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 you run an experiment and you'd have no idea. Whatever the outcome is, nothing's going to change. Maybe that's not uh, an experiment you should run anyway. Yeah, and I, I sort of classify experiments into 
at least one of two types. There's like prospective and iterative. Prospective are sort of like mm-hmm. your big transformative. Like we have no idea what's going to happen, but this is something interesting. And then your iterative ones are like, those are the more like the sure bets. Like we already have some historical data around here, or it's a follow-up from a previous experiment where we wanted to ref, you know, ref- refine our changes a little bit. A yeah. little bit more. Yeah, but even with uh, the the big change, you probably have an idea. Okay, if if, if this if this works, then oh wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we and can that's do this. We can do this. We can do this. Yeah, and typically the clients like that's that's where they're relying on the experimenters' insight because you have historical experience. Like, oh yeah, I've tested this six other times and it worked, you know, eighty five percent of the time or whatever. So. Yeah, exactly. So that's that's great, uh, Matt. Thanks for sharing all of that. Uh, last thing I'm interested in, and um, I mean, you give a lot of inspiration to those clients and and uh, um, uh, all, in, in all the work that you do, the hypothesis that you uh, create uh, for them. So where do you get your inspiration from? Oh, boy. Um... <laughs> well, besides besides zero roundtables, that is. Yeah. Well, that's a pretty recent <laughs> thing, actually. But but yeah. but it's healthy because having that sort of face-to-face vocal communication is, is way more mm-hmm. meaningful and valuable than say like link, LinkedIn comment chains or whatever. Even those are, those are still, those are still good and stuff. But um, <laughs> it's an interesting, like just general inspiration comes from lots of different sources. I'm, I'm very big on, on UX. I also, I also play a lot of video games. Video games are all about user experience like in user interface like like it, you know interacting with the interface is basically how you how you play the game and the the quality of the interface is going to determine how like successful or terrible yeah, how enjoyable the, the, it is yeah. right how enjoyable the gameplay is yeah and so you know i've been playing games for like a long time even just all the way back to the days of like the original like nintendo or even atari right but it doesn't have it doesn't necessarily have to be state of the art right i mean we all know no. uh, Mi- minecraft yeah. <laughs> it's it's not necessarily the high resolution that's uh, blowing you away there right no 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 and i was a big world of warcraft player for probably 12 years and yeah. completely you know, as designer like completely built and customized out my own interface and, <laughs> of and course. control control scheme <laughs> for it that that was able to optimize my my play so you know and just building off of that experience you know and you'll see like a lot of other people who aren't designers they'll post screenshots of like their interface and stuff and their their screen is cluttered with like 50 different action buttons (laughs) and stuff and it's like you're restricting like your your viewport of being able to see what's going on (laughs) in the play field and so it's like what's striking to me was like this really the concept of like timeliness of importance like timeliness of relevant information. Like there's there's this huge amount of information that you need when you're playing a game. But not all of it is relevant all the time. Like you only need to know, say this this ability is ready for you to use. You only like need to know like when it's available. You don't need to know when it's not available. Like you could hide the icon or something or like have some sort of like highlight or like glowing field or something. So that sort of like priority of relevance is a is a is a big and important feature in gaming and so like yeah so it's it's sort of the interface adapting to what you whatever you need uh right then and there right exactly yeah and so like i have this uh, i i have this uh this uh, stream deck right here (laughs) with all kinds of action buttons 
but it depends on the program I have open at that, that time. So if I have Chrome open, there are different, well, I don't have any actions for Chrome, <laughs> but theoretically for Chrome, I could have different action buttons than for Photoshop or for Premiere or for a game that I play. Right, exactly. Yeah, so, so that, yeah. and then, I don't know, I've been doing, I've been doing more reading lately and been and been picking up like books on on consulting and and a b testing and things like that because i i feel like my statistics game is is pretty weak so i've been reading a lot of like yeah. more of like the statistics space any recommendations on that front absolutely i was i've been reading through um uh Gheorghe's book um statistical methods in online a b testing Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's been a very very good one, useful one. I I know a lot of like the more less statistically minded people are like it's it's really dry and hard to read, but <laughs> I'm 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 finding it interesting and and relevant there and being able to incorporate those things into the process as well. You know, like circling back around to like say automation, you know, same kind of thing. Like, okay, I have all of my 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 statistics that I'm trying to calculate, like say in my planning stage. Mm -hmm. Again, that's a that's a repeatable process. Yeah. So I sh like having to go in and say, you know, manually type a bunch of numbers into a statistical calculator. That's that's tedious work. Yeah. Like it would be it would be interesting if say like some of the split testing tools actually like incorporated those in their pro like and I think kind of in general most of the split testing tools that I've used do kind of a poor job around the st the actual underlying statistics of the test like helping to determine and evaluate detectable effect and um and if you have like a reasonable sample size and things like that like they're they're erring too far on the side of of simplicity yeah. and that's kind of where like not not that CRO has like a bad name or anything, but that's where you get like a lot of like the snake oil kind of things where you see people like posting test results online or like yeah. writing a case study where they have like, oh, we, we tested 300 visitors and got a 250% <laughs> uplift after two days. And I'm like, sure, results are full of shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, your results probably just fine, but it's, <laughs> it's not going to be useful for you in the future. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, that that happens, and and um, it, it helps if you have some understanding. But do you also so you read books? Um, do you also do like online courses? Is that something that's uh, that you do, or is reading books more more useful to you? I think reading has been more useful to me, and also just you know my own my own just online yeah. shopping experiences. You know, like I'll go out and look at yeah. e-commerce sites and be like, oh here. It's kind of interesting the way that they're doing this or that or something, and and take notes and and solicit feedback and do things yeah. like that. So just like ob just observational journeying. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. For me, uh, the, I, I try to both read books and do online courses. I think for, with it takes me more effort to open a book than an than starting an online course. That's easier for me. Uh, but I'm definitely way more distracted when I'm behind my computer. So I definitely, when I do an online course, definitely need to sh shut down everything that's <laughs> that's available. Ideally, if possible, also download the online course and then just do it from my computer without any Wi-Fi on <laughs> to minimize distractions. Uh, otherwise, uh, yeah. Yeah, there's, I haven't really been doing, I haven't really gotten into 
online courses. You said you started reading books, but is that a recent change because of the the whole coronavirus uh, thing, or was it already on? No, I've always I've always been a book reader. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm I'm more of like a reading and an experiential learner. So yeah. for for me, it's more like I'll I'll read about something, then I'll go do it and try exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah, you have your notebook so, uh, on yeah. the side, saying, "Okay, this this yeah. is something yeah. I should incorporate well, in my in my as, nifty yacht. as an experimenter, <laughs> right? Try it, test it, fail at it, yeah. figure out what didn't work, and fail again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, Matt, thanks uh, so much. It was uh, lovely uh, talking to you. Uh, our time is up. Um, Thanks so much. Yeah, we have some uh, links to include in the show notes or everything uh, we spoke about. Uh, for example, uh, the book, uh, you'll find a link in the, in the show notes uh, below uh, in this uh, this podcast. Uh, thanks again, Matt. Uh, good luck um, uh, reading um, uh, and, 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 and yeah, building those automations. Uh, if you have more, uh, please share them with us. <laughs> we definitely want to know. Will do. Thank you. Thanks so much, Matt, for giving us some inspiration on what we can automate to make our work lives a bit less tedious. Good luck with all that you do and I'll talk to you soon. This was Season 2, Episode 17 of Zero Cafe with Matt Bashel from Corvus Zero. And as always, the show notes can be found on our website, zero.cafe. Although we started out as a Dutch podcast, we are putting out more and more English content. If you want to skip all the Dutch content, please go to zero.cafe slash English to see an overview of our English episodes and to subscribe to get notified about new English episodes. If you're interested in promoting your products or services to the best Zero podcast listeners in the world, please take a look at zero.cafe slash partner to see how we can collaborate. Next week, another English episode where I talk to the person that kickstarted the COVID-19 conversion rate aid package, aka COVID crap. Raul Doriswamy and I'll be talking about what COVID crap is and how you can join as a zero specialist or as a business. Talk to you then and always be optimizing.